Welcome to the Rebel Educator Podcast, where we work to amplify the voices and ideas of changemakers in education. We talk with students, educators, and thought leaders who are questioning the status quo and resisting tradition in education. So welcome Rebel Educators to this episode of the Rebel Educator Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to the Rebel Educator Podcast. I'm here today with Shira Leibovitz. Shira is a dynamic educator, author, and entrepreneur. She is CEO and founder of both Revabilities and Discovery Village. Revabilities is a professional learning academy helping educational business owners and directors bring their vision for learning to life so they can increase their income and improve the lives of their students. Discovery Village is a premier project and play-based childcare center and preschool located in Terrytown, New York. Shira is co-author to The Coach Approach to School Leadership, Leading Teachers to Higher Levels of Effectiveness. Her upcoming book, to be published in summer of 2022, is titled Havens of Hope, Ideas for Redesigning Education from the COVID-19 Pandemic. Shira holds a PhD in education. She's an experienced school leader who served 20 years as a principal of nursery through eighth grade independent schools in the greater New York area. Welcome, Shira. I'm so excited to hear about your upcoming book and all the work that you're doing in education. Thank you so much. It's so great to be here. I'd love to hear more about your educational journey, spending 20 years in schools and independent schools and preschools and nursery schools to starting your own preschool. Now, can you tell us more about that journey and how you decided to launch your own business? Absolutely. So like you, I was becoming somewhat of a rebel educator and imagining what was possible in education. And I loved being a principal for most of the years that I was. And towards the end, I really was glimpsing that something more was possible. And I had this wonderful opportunity to be the founding director of a micro school that opened in 2016. And from there, learned more and more about the world of new possibilities in education, was enamored with early childhood education, always tried to pull the play and project-based world of early childhood up rather than the academics down, and found the, the courage and the path to go out on my own. And that has been absolutely inspiring and, and an amazing journey. Excellent. You mentioned bringing the play up. Can you talk a little bit more about that and how play is used? I mean, especially in your preschool, but in school in general. We learn and experience through creativity and through discovery. So my school's name is Discovery Village. And that for me, pre-pandemic and still now, although what the school is has deepened for me, was the care of a village, the creativity of an art studio and the discovery of a science lab. It's since become more about well-being and self-discovery for people and care for the planet, it's evolved through all that we've experienced. I, for a long time, was very committed to project-based learning and to learning through doing and to, as much as possible, student-centered learning, passion projects, learning through what we really want to know and what we really want to create in the world rather than through a standardized curriculum. So 
within the schools that I led, I kept pushing up against the boundaries of how much can we shift from the standardization and support students to learn by being not preparing for something else, but through being living, creative, explorative humans right now at whatever age they are. Is your preschool primarily play-based or do you consider yourself project-based or is it more of like a student-centered holistic approach or is it all of these things together? (laughs) What's the boundary that you've pushed? Where are you now? It is all of these things together. So it's a play-based program, play and project-based program, following students' interests. Explorations can be a day or can go on for months based on how engaged the students become. And there is art and science explorations every day from the itty-bitty age infants. So we serve students from six weeks till they go off to kindergarten. And we were very heavily grounded in the arts and the sciences before the pandemic. We still are real messy play. We will always say to teachers, when all else fails, play. And you'll find your way through play. And children will learn the social emotional connections, the exploration, the discovery of themselves, and the academic skills through that play. So that's how we're grounded. Through pandemic, we became even more grounded in well-being, relationships, an environment of calm, transparency, and even deeper into play. So we wanted to create this oasis from the outside world where there's this sense of calm. So although there's a lot of excitement and fun and play, we're looking for an energy that just infuses calm and security and love. So when people come in, we get really excited when they'll say it feels like a spa in here with the essential oils blowing and the soft music. And kids are deeply engaged in all kinds of projects. And it's with this sense of a relaxed pace, which is different than what I had come into this with and what's emerging for us. Yeah, it sounds like a very different environment from many of the preschools, certainly that I visited when I was looking for preschool for my children. And from a lot of what I've seen emerging, especially as we push, you know, as a country now creating, or as a state, I guess California is doing this creating universal transitional kindergarten and pushing kids into school and into academics at an even younger age. But you mentioned the social-emotional learning, and I'm curious what you've seen from students coming in from a social-emotional and development level, the little ones that have been in the pandemic when they were so little, and coming through that, if you're seeing differences or challenges or noticing what's happening with our youngest kids over the past couple of years? We've been so intentional about bringing children in with love and with calm. So we've certainly seen students come in who had not really known anyone other than their immediate family members. And they've responded in such unique and different ways. We've certainly seen some of the separation anxiety and and fear. And that when a child comes in nervous about people around them, the entire school reaches out to slowly get them to know us, 
to feel connected. And so we bring them in and others come in and it, it's as if their minds are blown, their eyes light up and they're so excited to be in this still a small protected world, but a larger world than their own home and family with kids their own age, which is new for them. So that's been really, really beautiful. We've certainly heard so much about the trauma and about mental health challenges emerging from what everybody has gone through. And we've seen it for sure. We structured ourselves from the very start of the pandemic. I am located just north of New York City. It's one of the first and worst COVID hotspots in the country. And we never closed. And we were experiencing the height of COVID before it reached many other places in the country. And from those initial early days, it emerged from us that we wanted to create a place that felt safe, where when you walked in, the outside world was shut down. While having all of the health and safety protocols that we needed, we created those three months before New York State did. And once New York State came out with theirs, we had everything in place that we needed to, and in a playful way. So playing with the thermometers for the health checks, washing hands, and that becoming an exploration of water that went on for six months, exploring what water is. Water became the most amazing thing kids experienced. Washing hands was the way we were going to keep each other safe. And that clicked. We thought students would want more to talk about, or the older ones, about illness, about what was happening in the world. They did not. They wanted to splash around and play in the water and grow gardens and look at clouds and explore what under the sea looks like. And so we were able to take these external realities and find the awe and the wonder within them and create that kind of environment. So within this escape from that outside world and have managed with some dips and challenges for sure that we've seen and experienced, but when we experience them, we can identify it really quick and pull it back. And we've been really explicit with teachers saying, the academics are going to come. That's not what matters right now. What matters right now is being enveloped in a place where kids feel safe and loved. And from that place of safety and love, the creativity emerges. And from the creativity, the learning emerges. And so there's been this sense of flow that's really powerful. It does take effort to block out the outside. And we've been very intentional about that. One of the things you've done through the pandemic is to help other schools and child care centers create a similar framework. Can you talk a little bit about any maybe of the case studies or other organizations that you've worked with that have had success with shifting this culture? Absolutely. What we look at with the missionary educators that I'm blessed to work with, the early adopters and folks who are coming saying education shifted literally overnight when COVID hit. And we've been accused for so long of being so slow to change, changed immediately. I still hear it said that education is slow to change. Education may not be changing in the directions that many of us want to see it change. But I don't really think that there's truth in the statement that education hasn't changed. I think the evidence is preponderant. We did. We moved education online. We moved education outside. Early childhood programs stayed open when everybody else shut down. Everybody reopened with new protocols. So what I found was that that those who have really 
excelled and improved through this process have been able to sculpt themselves down to their essence. And so the work that we've done is to say, well, what is it at the essence? Not a long vision statement. We may or may not have them. They're not at core. But what at essence matters most? So for some of the folks that I'm working with, the essence comes down to finding what's always been true for ourselves, but we hadn't articulated before. So one of the programs I'm working with, which is expanding in all kinds of extraordinary ways, focuses on healing intergenerational trauma at its source and works with in high needs areas with families who have children from birth to the age of five and provides both learning for the children, social emotional support for the families. So that's one. And it became evident to this really visionary educator creating this program that she is providing early childhood care and services for families. That's the how. But the why is to catch intergenerational trauma at this very critical time. So that's one that's very powerful. A number I'm working with are nature programs, moving learning outside, which has emerged as so powerful in the past year. And each of those have a little bit of a different sense. All nature schools are not alike. They also are unique in their own magnificent ways, all connected to being outside, being in nature. But one of them, that essence, that core is creating healing environments and believing that healing happens most from outside. Another is about connection to a sense of awe and wonder. Another is about care for the planet. Another is about supporting other teachers and other programs to find what being outside means to you, bringing yourself into the world and the world into you. So different nuance to another program that I'm working with is looking at interrupting racism at its source as a program being led out of Mississippi and really confronting in white Mississippi what racism means in that environment. Another one is teaching language and culture through stories in the early childhood space. So finding my voice in the world through language and different languages and different cultures. So they're all different and unique, and they hold a lot in common, but that subtle nuance of that deepest why really shifts everything and helps them be with a world-class extraordinary programs, they were good before, they were great before, but they're growing into being truly world-class. And that's so incredibly inspiring to see. Yeah. And it sounds like so much of the work that you're doing is helping them find that underlying purpose and that why. And driving back to that reason, probably the reason why they created the program in the first place, that maybe as you said, was never articulated or just hasn't been as strong a part of the message throughout time. Um, And so remembering that, it's so important to remember why we do the work that we do, because it's hard. Being an educator is hard. Running a school is hard. And so having that solid base of this is why I'm doing it does give so much new life and so much inspiration. Absolutely. And, you know, we get as educators... We love our approaches. We love our ideologies. And so we can get caught in our jargon. And when we push ourselves to let it all go and just get down to the essence, it becomes really much more powerful. And then the following steps are to really implement it in all aspects 
of what we do, not only our program, but also our operations, human resources, marketing, everything that we do is infused with that deep why. And then we work on, when we get through that, sustaining it in a culture and a purpose that's lived long-term and continues to evolve. So it's been really, really powerful. Let's talk about your book. You have a new book coming out, Havens of Hope, Ideas for Redesigning Education from the COVID-19 Pandemic. So can you share how the book came to be? Absolutely. So as I shared earlier, my center is just north of New York City, and we stayed open, and we have a capacity to serve 128 students, and overnight, we dropped to six. Wow. Yeah. We were only serving children whose families needed them to be there because they were essential workers. Everybody who could at that point was home. It's hard to recapture what that fear was in those early days, especially the places that were the first hotspots when we just did not understand what was happening around us. So we dropped six students and I made the commitment to remain open and it was really hard. I was not charging anything to the students who weren't coming. So I had essentially no money coming in in those early days. I was making payroll out of my own savings. So financially, we, we didn't know what was going to happen. Health-wise, we didn't know what was going to happen, right? In, in those early days, it was we felt like if a child touched a toy, another child touched, they could die. We were in this headspace of not having acclimated to what was happening around us. And we also provided online learning, which when I first heard about online learning, remote learning for preschoolers, toddlers, even infants, it sounded like the dumbest thing I had ever heard. And then we did it. And it worked. We don't continue to do it because we believe in the live when we can, but we went for several months serving those for free, those who weren't coming to keep them connected with remote programming. So we were doing the live for the kids who came and then they they filtered back as their families were ready and needed them to and the remote. And I'm standing in this world that felt like science fiction. I felt like like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, like I had gone to sleep in one reality and walked outside and walked into another. And like the Wizard of Oz, there was something so beautiful about it, despite the fear and the terror. And I'd stand back in this one room and then it wheedled down even more. So I was paying all of my staff and then I didn't get the first round of paycheck protection plan loans that went to the big programs and had to furlough people. I, I got them back within six weeks. They weren't furloughed for long, but I had to furlough for a while. I didn't know what was going to happen. So during that period where folks were furloughed, it was three of us in a room with six children, rest of the center, dark, quiet. And I stepped back and it was the most beautiful child-directed, play-based learning, mixed-age toddlers and preschoolers, none of the infants were there, that I had ever experienced in my career. And I felt like I was standing at this founding moment for education. Something was growing. We didn't know what. And so I thought back, I'm a Reggio-inspired program and Reggio-inspired learning developed in Northern Italy in the days following World War II in an area of Italy that had been very active in the resistance against Italian fascism, bombed out by the British, destroyed through Italian civil law being part of the resistance. And this group of villagers decided to create a preschool to prepare their youngest children to stand strong against the oppression and inequity and injustice that they knew was not over, even though the war was, that this 
legacy of fighting against fascism was going to continue for their children. So they built this preschool. That's what Ratio Inspired Learning is at its core. It is play-based. It is project-based. It is relationship-rich. It focuses on documentation, all of those beautiful things. But at its core, it was about continuing to fight a battle that mattered. And so I stood there thinking, are we at such a moment? Might we be at such a moment? And I wanted to document it as it was happening. And so I reached out to other programs. And the book traces the experiences of 25 different programs, early childhood that stayed open, early childhood that moved outside, came to 12 programs, independent, charter, public, large, small pods that became full-on microschools that never closed, alternative community programs, and how they not only navigated through, but got better and got deeper and deeper and closer to the core of what they believe. And so the book documents what happened because I wanted to capture it as it was happening in order to, from there, build on it and find the principles of what it was that we were intuitively finding through this horrific adversity and apply that to what we might want to create, choose to create, once we were able to come through the depth of crisis and create more out of choice than out of necessity. And that that's the book. It sounds fascinating. I'm excited to read it. <laughs> I, I knew that you were talking about the pandemic, but hearing about 25 different programs and all of the things that they went through and just knowing in my own experience and looking around at schools near us and schools, my friends, kids or families, you know, children were in and all of the different iterations of the ways that people looked at the pandemic and took on the challenge or frankly didn't was really fascinating. Like it's going to be a great work of history to have documented so many different things that happened during this time. Yeah, thank you. I was going to ask about insights, if there were insights from the book that might help people who are really interested in redesigning education for their own students or their own children or their own centers, what insights can you share? Give us a sneak peek. Absolutely. So all of these programs struck with adversity became, uh, I'll talk about it, the, the shift began with with the letter A. It was adversity and authenticity. They became more and more true to themselves, less and less standardized. They stopped looking at what anybody else was doing, kind of turned inward. They were connecting because they, they were lonely. We were lonely. So we were connecting, but very selective in how we were connecting and really kind of turning inward to understand ourselves and who we were during this period. And blocking out the noise and blocking out the jargon and blocking out the what we always believed unless we found that that was what called us. And, and so in facing this adversity, we became ourselves. And in coming ourselves, there were four different paths that these programs experienced or some combination of the paths. So for some, COVID was a catalyst and it sent them in a direction they never thought they would have gone. And that happened for some of the pods, mostly, that became microschools, people who opened schools that never thought that they were a person who might open a school or could even envision how you could open a school. These schools seem like these 
large, ever-existing, super expensive, unreachable kinds of structures. And they found that in a very adaptive, fluid way, they could start a school. So, so COVID was a catalyst for, for new, new directions. For others, COVID was an accelerator. And they were on a trajectory and it sped it up exponentially. So some of the independent schools, programs like yours, that alternative kind of innovative programs that had opened pre-pandemic 2015 to 2018, in those years, newer programs, they accelerated and they just revved up momentum and achieved what in their minds was a much longer journey in a really compressed amount of time. The adversity kind of gave energy that propelled them forward. So it was the catalyst, the accelerator. There was the anchor. So there were some that really quickly, they knew their core. They knew it. They lived it. They could articulate it. And they grounded themselves into that anchor of who they are and what they believe. And that held them steady when others felt like the world was blowing them over. They felt steady and secure in that anchor, in that core. And others, and this was my experience as a school, we all experience components of all of it, but this was the strongest for me was, was as a sculptor. We sculpted, there were so many things we believed about education, so many things we had learned and developed and put into our programs. We sculpted it back to what is the absolute essence of what our people need right now? What is it that matters most? And by grounding into that and kind of sculpting away what was exterior and peripheral, we were able to find that core again and then rebuild slowly from there. And so it struck me in, in looking back at this that adversity faces us all the time in smaller ways. And the adversity can even be self-imposed, right? The adversity can be, we're not yet who we know we can be. Uh, so the pain of that gap can be adversity, right? It doesn't take pandemic to say, we're in this, we're all in. Pandemic pushed us all in because we didn't have to, we didn't have a choice to say, I'm done with COVID. I don't want it anymore. Stop, right? We were in something that the only way through was to continue through. But we can choose of our own volition to say, I'm in this because I believe in it fully and wholly. And that's what those who really emerged through stronger and stronger did and continue to do. Yeah, we had to make a commitment for sure. Like you said, the only way through was to keep going, but to see that path to continue going was a solid commitment, whether whatever was happening in the business, whether it was catalyst, whether there were new opportunities, whether there were new challenges, like there, there are always new opportunities and new challenges every single day, but what you do with them and how you look at them and how you commit to that, that change or that challenge or that opportunity was, I think, really defined in a lot of ways and really stripped down to its core over the last two years because there there wasn't another path. Like continuing business as usual wasn't an option. So which way do you commit and how do you dig in became really important. Absolutely. It pulled away from us the opportunity to say or think or fall into habits and routines of just the way we've always done it. We could not do it the way we had always done it. And that became, for me, very powerful. And I would say to my leadership all the time, when we find something that will work, it will work until it doesn't. And then we're going to be ready to change it and let it go. 
And so we've built that so powerfully into the culture that we're not unnerved when we have to or choose to change things because they're no longer working the way we wanted them to. Mm-hmm. Well, I love to hear stories from your elementary school years. As the founder of an elementary school and running a K-5 to program, I love to hear stories of others from that time period in their life. So do you have a story that you could share from your elementary school years? I do. And I've been thinking about this teacher recently more and more and talking about her as questions come up in conversation about elementary school. My fourth grade teacher's name was Mrs. Jackson. And Mrs. Jackson was an older teacher and had lived through a lot. And she had this approach to teaching, which was really grounded in storytelling. And most of her stories were from her own life. So history was taught from her own life. She lived through the depression. And I just remember her depression stories so strongly and feeling like history is real. It's happening to us all the time. I was making the connection now that that Maybe she comes back to me having just lived through a moment that I felt like I was living through history. And you know, what do we do with those moments? And she also had this wisdom and this way of talking to her heart that has come back to me later in ways that are, are kind of chilling. So there was this period of time where we were using the term evil as slang and saying things like, mom is evil, she makes me eat broccoli. And this disturbed Mrs. Jackson so much. So she wanted to explain it to us in a way we can understand. So she said, you have to understand the meaning of the word evil. Let me think of what I could tell you that evil is. And the example she gave was somebody walking into an elementary school and shooting children would be evil. It's the worst thing she could imagine. And I remember when Columbine happened and school shooting sins remembering Mrs. Jackson saying, this is the epitome of evil. And at the time there were not school shootings, or at least that we knew of, we never heard of such a thing. It was the worst thing she could imagine. And being blown away and thinking, this is a troubled child, not a terrorist. What has the world come to? And I I think that that also, she comes back to me and sort of grounding me in this approach of a focus on well-being And how much we as a society are being pushed, begged, called to shift the way we engage. So thinking about her as kind of thinking about past, present, and future all combined as once, she did have a very powerful impact on me that I continue today, kind of continues to be my teacher, and her wisdom continues to cause me to reflect and wonder and think about what it is that I want to create and how I want to be in the world. Thank you, Shira. Thank you. How can people get in touch with you? You can find uh, my website and get on my mailing list, revabilities.com. And we have free and low price workshops in addition to the coaching programs. You can also find me. I have a Facebook group, Standout Educational Leadership, so you can join and engage in that conversation. Or you can find me on Twitter at Shira Lipowitz, and I would love to connect. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed our conversation. This has been wonderful. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much. It's always a great treat to speak with you. Take good care. You too. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Rebel Educator Podcast. 
I'd invite you to check out rebeleducator.com where you can see all of our upcoming workshops, webinars, and professional development opportunities. upacademysf.com where you can see our current progressive elementary school in action. And if you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to leave a review and rate our show so that others can find it and love us too. Keep resisting tradition, Rebel Educators. Rebel Educators.